Hey, I'm Gretchen Bridgers of the Always a Lessons Empowering Educators podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. My special guest today is longtime California math educator Robert Kaplinsky, who's the author of a new book titled Open Middle Math, Problems That Unlock Student Thinking. In addition to the new book, Robert is a popular speaker and presenter as the founder of the Observe Me movement that encourages teachers to invite colleagues into their classroom for honest feedback to improve best practices in teaching and learning. You can follow the movement on social media with the Observe Me hashtag. And if you want to participate, we'd love to hear from you. So reach out to Robert and myself on Twitter. You can follow Robert at Robert Kaplinsky. You can always find me at Dr. Greg Goins. So folks, with this episode, I'm also very excited to announce the launch of my new Reimagined Schools newsletter. And this is an opportunity uh, for you to receive in your email box every Friday uh, the show notes from whatever guest or podcast topic we have for the week. It will include some valuable resources to create better schools for kids. It's also a wonderful way to share out episodes with your colleagues and the folks there in your school district. So sign up for the newsletter. You can hit me up at Dr. Greg Goins on Twitter. And you can find the link within the pinned profile on my Twitter page. You can also go to my website, reimagineschools.net, to find the link. So I'm very excited about the newsletter, and I hope you can share those links out. And sign up as quickly as you can, folks, because you don't want to miss any of our show notes, as we've been very fortunate to have some wonderful guests and some big ideas over the last several months right here on the Reimagine Schools podcast. So with that, I hope you enjoy the day, whether you're in the car, the commute to work, maybe you're on the treadmill, or just relaxing at home, turn up the volume and enjoy this conversation with Robert Kaplinsky. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, bringing in Robert Kaplinsky, a math educator, also the founder of the Observe Me Movement. He has a great new book coming out at the end of this month on October 28th. Name of the book is Open Middle Math, Problems That Unlock Student Thinking. Big welcome to you, Robert. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Greg. I'm happy to be here. Now, you are in California, West Coast, been teaching since, I think, 2003. Yes, um, that's true. And as a math educator, um, you know, I haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk with people in the math field, but I find your work fascinating. So can you tell us just a little bit about your math background and how really this new concept of open middle math came to be? You know, um, I, I start from sort of the, I mean, I have a bachelor's uh, in math from UCLA, but I, the more I've learned about math, the more I realize I really don't know anything. Um, I, I think that you get to this point where you realize that you've been a good robot who was able to do the things that your teacher asked you to do. But then when you 
start to really think about like why any of it works, you realize you don't actually know why it works and you've just been doing these things. And it opens up Pandora's box. We start to realize like, oh my God, there might be reasons for all these things that we do. And, and that thought is, is fairly terrifying. Um, but I, I've turned it into sort of a, what I hope is a strength because it helps me realize what it's like to be our students and how I don't want them to have anything like uh, I had. And it kind of gives me my kind of North Star when I'm looking at different opportunities and different resources to think, you know, will this actually help someone truly understand mathematics? And, you know, the, the math content area um, is always one that is very challenging. I know there's been a lot of positive things happen with the STEM or STEAM movement, however you want to go about that. But, uh, you know, here in middle America, uh, common core is still kind of a dirty word. There's still a lot of people that are uh, putting up a pretty strong resistance against that. Um, just in terms of math instruction, you know, that's, that's also a very difficult content area to staff. There's a huge shortage of quality math and science teachers. Why do you think math is, um, is always taking the brunt of um, a lot of this negativity? I, I guess math needs a better publicist. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a really complex and interesting story. I'll, I'll say a few things. Like, I haven't done a lot of heart surgery. So I don't really have an opinion on, you know, whether the current methods of heart surgery are really that effective. But pretty much everyone has done math. And they feel like, well, I mean, I've done math. I've done years of math. So I, I know what is this and that. But I think in general, people have a challenging time separating what they're familiar with with what is really best. And I think also the idea of what best means is different to different people. Like, uh, you know, if you think about traditional high school math, you've got your algebra, your geometry, and algebra two. Like, how in the world was that come up? How did they come up with that? Like, how was that decided? And when you trace back the origins, it comes back to, uh, we need to catch up in the Cold War. We need more scientists, more engineers, and these are the classes they need. But, I mean, I challenge anyone, tell me the last time in your life you used geometry or algebra to like, uh, there might've been some random time here or there, but the, some of us somehow we've all come to be okay with the reality that we're spending years on math, very few of us actually use in real life. Well, there's a whole lot of math, maybe it's statistics or algebra, um, that very few of us actually get enough instruction with, but all of us need in our life, like figuring out how to interpret, you know, statistics or, um, even just basic math from middle school that we rush through because we're in this race for calculus, but uh, the actual math we use, we don't get enough help with. So I think there's a really big, uh, a, a big gap in the way people see it. And I'm not necessarily saying, I mean, again, going back to best, is best that uh, we need to give the math that will help kids get into college? Is best we need to get the math that will be foundational in case you know, the world ends and we don't have calculators anymore? Uh, is best math actually use. I think that people have different ideas of what they want. And I think it's very refreshing to hear someone that's a math expert and you have the book coming out. Talk about this idea that things like algebra two, pre-calculus, calculus. Uh, I mean, these are things that I wouldn't necessarily describe as life skills. Uh, you, you have a wonderful blog on your website. And one of the things I just read doing some prep work for this interview was, 
uh, 10 things that you're embarrassed to tell people. And one of them was you would probably have a hard time passing some of those high level high school math finals right now because it's not something we do every day. And, and that, that is very refreshing. I've always been an advocate for uh, life skills. You know, I'm an advocate for, you know, give kids at the elementary school level a change box. Let them learn how to make change in a business setting or take them to Walmart and let them calculate the sales tax or how much they're going to save if a sweater is 40% off. All these things have to be part of the conversation. And I think you would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, going back to your, your, uh, the reference to my blog post about 10 things I'm embarrassed to tell you. I think in general, uh, in education, we focus, and really just in life, we think about Facebook and such, people share the pretty parts uh, a lot more frequently than they do the parts that are, are, are less pretty. And I think what it does is it gives people a disproportionate view of like how perfect everyone's world is except your own. And I, I think that really we need to do more to kind of just share the, the challenging parts of being an educator and that uh, guess what? If you haven't taught that one grade level in a long time, it's going to be a little bit of time before you feel comfortable teaching it again. Uh, and yeah, I think I, I have another blog post that I think is a, an interesting thought experiment. And the question is simply, should we be teaching the same math standards in 100 years? And, and it's interesting how people respond to that. Some people are like, of course, math is always the same. But then you, know, you can start pushing on that. Like, let's take coins. We teach elementary children how to use coins. I mean, are we really going to be using coins in 100 years? And so maybe that's gone. What about clocks? What about, you know, again, multiplying decimals by hand? Like, who the hell does that anymore? Right? Use a calculator. But yet we spend weeks on these things, and no one ever used them. Yet there's so many life skills that kids don't have that we don't spend enough time on, like problem solving. So that, that's kind of what I'm passionate about. Yeah, and, and I know you're passionate about really two big ideas that I want to get into. Uh, number one is problem-based learning. And you can go to openmiddle.com, the website. And I, I love the tagline for the website, math problems that replace worksheets, because I, you know, I think uh, worksheets have been the bane of society in, in public education for far too long. But then the other thing is depth of knowledge. Can you talk about those two ideas, problem-based learning and depth of knowledge and how they really kind of drive your thinking? Yeah, so uh, problem-based learning can mean different things to different people. Um, the way I define it is essentially you're, learn you're using some sort of real life or some sort of bigger problem to make sense of mathematics. Uh, I do these real world lessons too. And so you've got this context which you use to help uh, develop this understanding. Like I've got uh, maybe some of your listeners have heard of In-N-Out Burger. Uh, someone had ordered a 100 by 100 for In-N-Out, which means 100 layers of meat and 100 layers of cheese. And so kids are in awe of this burger and they're thinking like how where is this and how much and, and eventually they start to try to figure out how much money it is and this problem becomes a context for understanding patterns and numbers and adding an extra layer of meat and cheese an extra layer an extra layer um, so that helps uh, open middle uh, is related to that and, and i want you to kind of think about problems in the sense that they have a beginning a middle and an end and, and i'll tangent first to talk about like a reality tv like the amazing race uh, I'm going to spoil The Amazing Race for all of your listeners forever. Um, here's how it goes. Every first episode begins with lots of contestants. And every season finale ends with someone winning. That's it. So why the hell does anyone listen to this? It's because everyone wants to see what happens in the middle. So the beginning of The Amazing Race is always closed. It's the same. It ends. It's always closed. It's always the same. It's the middle that's open. And the same thing is true about problem solving. If you give kids problems, 
maybe they all start the same way and there's one right answer, but they can talk about the various strategies for how they solve it, it leads to really interesting conversations. And that's really where I'm a fan of this open middle idea. So my guess would be that as you were a first, second, third year teacher early in your career, you were very traditional in how you went about teaching math, probably taught the way you were taught uh, as a student. When or where did that aha moment come from in which you thought, you know what, there's a better way of doing this? Yeah, I was an awful teacher in my first two years. Like legit, I would totally fire me if I saw me in my first two years. I didn't know what I was doing. And you said it exactly. I realized in retrospect, I was just teaching the way I had been taught. And really, um, I was lecturing because my last four years of experience were college. So I was awful. Now, your, your question of when, when did I realize that this was not the way? I, I think, honestly, I went through stages of denial. Um, I'll give you a simple example uh, that I can recall as being that point. Someone, if you can remember how to divide fractions, uh, the, the common idea people say is invert and multiply. Like you change division to multiplication and you do reciprocal of the fraction on the right. And I was in a training and someone asked, why does that work? And my first thought was, I mean, essentially, uh, if I made it this far, I guess it doesn't matter. Then I got into areas of like, oh, wait, is there, is there actually a reason why it works? And then it was like, wait, oh crap. Like if there's a reason, I don't know it. Like, what does that mean about how well I understand this? And then it came with, oh crap, what if this is actually true about other things in math and there's reasons for those as well? And honestly, it just had waves of me realizing I can do math and I have no idea why any of this works. And I'm not saying it was comfortable, but I started trying to realize like, and, and take opportunities to understand how it is I know anything and, and, and why things work and really on that quest. And it, it's been uh, equal parts exhilarating and, and humiliating and humbling. Uh, but I'm at a place now where the pain of continuing to create kids like I was uh, is worse than the pain of having to realize that there's a lot of things I don't actually know as well as I thought I did. And, and I think that's very well said. And I'm just sitting here reflecting on my many years as a school superintendent, as a high school principal, the really good math teachers that I had the pleasure of working with, somehow, some way, they found a way to make it fun in the classroom. Even if it was something simple like the game of baseball, you know, all the statistics that you see in the paper after the, after the game the night before, uh, whether it's batting average, earn run average, there are a lot of new statistics now uh, as things continue to evolve with analytics in the game of baseball. But, um, you know, I would think that that would be something also at the forefront of any math instruction. Find a, find a hook, find a way to get them excited about math. Yeah, I think that I'm not at all trying to say that my way is the only way to teach math correctly. I, I will just say that I have found that kids, uh, really that every human really enjoys problem solving when it's presented authentically. And if you can teach math using problem solving, then it, it provides a context that people are willing to learn about something. Like if you can connect things that people uh, don't necessarily, well, people, if you can connect things that people do care about, the things that they're less interested in, then it makes them more interested in wanting to learn about that as well. And I'm also fascinated with this idea of depth of knowledge. I, I mean, it's one thing to get the problem correct. It's another thing to really kind of use some critical thinking to understand how you got there. As you think about that concept, how has that been something that you continue to talk about? Yeah, so, so depth of knowledge comes from a professor at a, at a University of, of Wisconsin, Norman Webb. 
1997, he wrote a, a paper um, where essentially at its most basic level, he noticed that the way to describe a standard in uh, the actual text, the standards, wasn't exactly the same way that they were testing it. So they might have described like a deeper understanding that was actually being tested. And he noticed that the depth of the knowledge required to answer it was not the same. And from that paper really came this whole idea of depth of knowledge, just that you can say addition, like add two numbers, but there are different levels of understanding that. And that in some cases, kids might appear to deeply, uh, might appear to ask. I guess a phrase I often use is that when you ask superficial questions, you get superficial information back about what kids know. And a lot of times, I mean, let's be honest, we don't, most of our standardized assessments aren't asking questions that are great questions. They're asking the kinds of questions that standardized assessments know how to ask. Because the, the, the really interesting questions, well, they don't know how to ask those on computers yet. And so a lot of those questions that are on standardized assessments, they're pretty shallow and they don't give us good information. So you have these kids who maybe score well, but don't deeply understand what they're talking about. So with that understanding that depth of knowledge exists, that there's different depths of knowledge, Norman Webb kind of defined four levels. Uh, where one was the shallowest and four was the deepest, like some sort of application. Uh, from that point, uh, it really becomes like a diaspora. Everyone has come to coin depth of knowledge in their own lens. Uh, and I'm not gonna claim that my way is the only right way. But what I have done is tried to use that classification to show what one concept in mathematics could look like at three different depth of knowledge levels. I've created these depth of knowledge matrices that show, uh, I've actually got them now from uh, third grade all the way through uh, high school, through algebra two, one for each grade level. I've got ones that are sixth grade through calculus. I've got ones that are kindergarten through middle, uh, for, through fifth grade, I've got lots of them. But the, the key point is they'll take a single concept, like say adding two digit numbers, and they'll show you what that looks like at DOK one, depth of knowledge level one, then depth of knowledge level two, and then three. And it's really interesting to see that same concept uh, at, you know, asked in three different depth of knowledge levels it helps people realize, wow, there's a deeper level here that I hadn't really realized, you know, maybe my students did not understand. My guest today is Robert Kaplinski. You want to check out his website, robertkaplinski.com. Also, the book website, openmiddle.com. The name of the book, again, is Open Middle Math, Problems That Unlock Student Thinking. It will be out October 28th, so you can go ahead and pre-order that book uh, wherever books are sold. And, and Robert, as we kind of wrap up our conversation about, about the new book, what can you tell our listeners out there that have an interest in this new concept? Why should uh, math teachers or really anyone that has an interest in better math instruction run out and buy the book? If you don't want to have the same situation that you had when you were a student and you've been looking for uh, another way of teaching math that you can easily integrate into what you're already doing, it didn't require administrator support, it didn't require you to abandon all your things that you just wanted to integrate, I would strongly begin by checking out openmiddle.com. It's O-P-E-N-M-I-D-D-L-E.com. Uh, all the problems there are free. And honestly, if, if it's going great for you, then, then stay with it. But one thing you might realize is that you'd like more support. You might want to know how do you pick a problem? How do you prepare to use that problem? How do you facilitate the conversation that, that happens in class? What do you do if things don't go the way you hoped? How do you make more problems? And that's really what my book goes into. So if you're looking for problems, check out Open Middle. But if you want more support on how to use them, my book is great for that. 
And the website's wonderful. Again, folks, you want to check it out. It has lesson plans, examples. It walks you through everything you need to improve math instruction in your classroom. So, Robert, as we kind of shift gears away from uh, the math idea into uh, the Observe Me movement, that's probably where I first connected with you a few years ago. Uh, I remember when pineapple charts were a big thing, and uh, we really began talking about this idea of visiting other classrooms just informally to step in and see what other great teachers are doing. And I, I always have been a strong advocate for that. Well, we have to do a better job of learning from each other, but teachers also have to be receptive to having visitors in their classroom. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the growth of Observe Me? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in somehow, in some way, uh, observations have been a four-letter word in education. I think primarily it's because observations are something that's done to you uh, against your will. Maybe you don't have a lot of say about what's talked about or how it goes. And so people don't like it. People want to shut their doors because they're always afraid of being scrutinized. And the observing movement actually kind of came from one educator, uh, Heather Cohen, sharing a, a picture of a sign where someone said that they welcome people in and this teacher wanted specific feedback on two areas. And that tweet got so much traction. And I was like, why? Like, if you really think about it, the idea of a teacher asking other teachers to come in should not be remarkable, but it was, and everyone knew it was. And so I kind of thought, what if we standardize this? What if teachers took control back of the observation process? Uh, I think also what's really important about Observe Me is that it's an, a, a mutually beneficial arrangement. It's not at all, come watch me because I'm awesome and you're not. It's also, uh, you know, I'm the knowledgeable person and I'm going to observe you and tell you everything that you're doing wrong. It's a, hey, I could use another set of eyes in the classroom and here's what I'd like you to focus on, mixed with, hey, while you're here, you know, check it out. You might have something that's interesting for you to see as well. And I think that that collaboration where we can learn from each other is something that there is not enough of in education for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah, and I think it's a wonderful movement and a wonderful concept. I, I just, I don't believe there should be a monopoly on great ideas. And, and too many times I've worked with teachers and, you know, I, I would say, you might want to run down and see what Mrs. Jones is doing. She's doing a new project on whatever. It, it's really innovative and, and you may enjoy watching her do that. And even if they go down and watch, you know, they'll come back and they'll say, well, I can't do that because she's already doing it down the hall. We can't have two fifth grade teachers doing the same project. And my response is always, why not? I mean, if it's, if it's a great lesson and it's, uh, if kids are engaged and it's meeting, if it's standard space, then why can't we all do it? So uh, I would just throw that question to you. Why can't we all replicate great teaching? Yeah, why can't we? I mean, I, I think my fundamental core belief is that the group is always smarter than the smartest person in the group. And if we took each person's best idea and shared them, damn, we'd be like, amazing. Uh, I have learned so much by watching other teachers. Sometimes it's, damn, I should have been doing that. Like, how am I not? Or it's, oh, I'm glad I'm not doing this. I mean, it goes both ways. Sometimes when I observe people ask me, you know, why did you ask that question and not that? I'm like, well, that's a great point. I should have asked that question. I didn't even think about that. Uh, and for the last eight years, so I, I took a leave of absence from uh, my school district and left in 2018. But for the last eight years when I was in the Unified School District, I was a teacher specialist where I supported secondary math teachers. And I spent so many times in people's classes and I, that was the best time of my career. 
doing lesson study, just watching other teachers, I learned so much from them. And I felt sad that other teachers didn't get that opportunity. It's not at all one-sided, like the person observing or the person teaching is the one with the control. It needs to be mutual. And you know, you have mentioned pineapple charts. Uh, Jennifer Gonzalez and her co-author created that idea. And that's also beneficial. Like it's this idea of, hey, here are all the great things that are happening in our school. Uh, I think it can be done actually in collaboration with Observe Me. So that let's, if you think of pineapple charts as the way of advertising what's going on, Observe Me would complement it by saying, here's specifically what we want feedback on when you come. Yeah, and I, and I think too many times, uh, you know, teachers may be listening to this episode and thinking, you know what, I would love to have someone come in and watch me. How do I do that? Is that uh, something that's going to be a systematic approach where I'm going to have to get permission from my principal? Or can I just stick a sign out on my door that says, come in and observe me? And I don't think we need to make it too complicated. We just need to be able to share great ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to be very clear, it's not the field of dreams. Like, you don't put up the sign, like, if you hang the sign, they will come. Like, no one's used to that. No one's going to come exactly like you think no one's going to come. Uh, so uh, a few thoughts. I have, first off, I have a website, a, a, a blog post called Troubleshooting Observe Me for like the most common uh, tips. Uh, everything from you're not getting useful feedback to no one's coming to how do you check in with your administrator. Uh, so if you Google Troubleshooting Observe Me, you'll find that there. But simply put, uh, the way I think it begins is by putting up the sign and then having the person that you care uh, they have the best relationship come by. It's a little bit like this. If you say to a group of people, hey, we should hang out sometime, you're never hanging out with any of them. But if you go up to a specific person and say, hey, on Tuesday, let's go make plans after work. You know, those, you need to be specific and not vague. Go up to a specific person and say, I'd love for you to come by and your prep on this day. And you know, they might say no, but you will probably get more likely people coming. Once you have that first person come, that second person come, and people realize that you're not just there to brag and show off, uh, I think that people will start to maybe become uh, more amenable to this idea. Maybe even having a team of teachers start this process would be worthwhile as well. Yeah, it's definitely something you want to check out. You can just follow the hashtag Observe Me. Uh, you can follow Robert on Twitter and uh, you know reach out to all of us and we'll help help get you started. And and Robert, the, I think the last piece of this that I want to talk about today. And again, thanks for being here. It's been a great conversation. Even though you're no longer with your school district, you are speaking, uh, presenting, uh, offering workshops, but you've also created a pretty cool professional development service called uh, Grassroots Workshops. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, speaking about things that we've just kind of gotten used to, think about the current way we do professional development. Like, it doesn't really meet our needs when you really think about it. It's usually one size fits all. Uh, maybe, you know, someone comes, maybe you've heard of them or her, maybe you haven't. Maybe it's on what you teach. Maybe it's, hey, take this and then figure out how you're going to make the work in your classroom. Uh, often you're out of the classroom running sub plans. It just doesn't really fit our needs. Uh, so I created Grassroots Workshops with the idea that I want educators to learn from the other educators that they know, like, and trust, right? So that it's online, so it's flexible, so it can work around your schedule. Uh, it's affordable. I mean, if you think about these conferences where you're spending like a thousand plus dollars just on travel, um, that, that breaks the bank. So this gives you that flexibility to learn over an extended period of time. Like if you go to a conference, what's the best case scenario? You see someone you love, but it's 60 minutes. Like how much are you really going to learn in that time? Uh, this is over a period of 16 weeks. So it gives you a lot of options that I think are worth considering. And the, the really cool thing about it is, as I was doing a little more research and we communicated prior to the interview, uh, you sent me the link for Masterclass. And I hadn't really spent a lot of time on the Masterclass website 
but it looks like the grassroots workshop uh, concept really came from the masterclass uh, setup. And, and I think that's a brilliant idea. I'm really surprised personally that, that more PD hasn't moved toward video, especially with YouTube and those type of website opportunities. But uh, there are still people having the old traditional conference that, as she says, that one size fits all doesn't necessarily work. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's important to really balance that, right? Because a lot of the best parts of in-person workshops are that interaction, that, that communication. So uh, it's not purely video in the sense that it's just you sit and get, um, but it, there is that interaction with the instructors. And it's, you have questions, they get answered by the people that you want them to answer, that, that instructor. So uh, it's something that I really hope, that, I, mean, I mean, think about encyclopedias, right? When we were children, the idea that we would not have books with letters on the spine uh, in our house, uh, that would seem absurd. But now if you've got uh, encyclopedias in your house, you must be a hipster. In the same way, like maybe we're in that, tra that, that transition period where the idea of online professional development might have seemed strange maybe 10 years ago. But I, I really think, you know, in 10 more years, the idea of uh, being out of your classroom for PD every single time is going to be antiquated. And so I think this gives teachers the flexibility that they've been looking for. And you, you talked about... Um it being online, it, what website can you go to and what categories will folks find when they go there? Yeah, so the website is grassrootsworkshops.com. It's plural, both of them, grassrootsworkshops.com. Uh, right now, we're, we're initially got, we have six workshops in mathematics. Uh, we have a, another one coming in, in family and consumer science, uh, but we're looking to expand into other subject areas as well over time. Well, I certainly want to thank you for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. And folks, again, uh, be looking for the new book coming out, Open Middle Math, Unlock uh, Problems That Unlock Student Thinking. Uh, it's going to be a good one and, and be a game changer for how you think about math instruction. So, Robert, as we kind of wrap up our time together, I do want to give you a closing thought. Again, we have a lot of uh, school leaders listening. We have teachers listening. Uh, what words of, of encouragement can you give them over the last two or three minutes here to kind of inspire them to maybe think a little bit differently about their practice in the classroom. You know, thank you for this opportunity, Greg. I, I think just in general, it's really hard to separate uh, what we've always been doing with what we want to do going forward. I think part of that is just that there's just always so much pressure to keep going. Uh, but I hope that you'll find opportunities to just savor a moment and think about, is this really the way that is meeting my needs and the best way forward uh, between observe me uh, open middle and grassroots workshops. They're really, the, the, the core theme is I'm trying to rethink how we do things so that we can have uh, outcomes that meet our needs going forward. And I hope that you checked them out. So thank you very much. So that's a wrap on another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. As always, I want to thank all of our loyal listeners out there for listening to the show, sharing episodes and having the conversation in your school about how we can create better schools for kids. So a big thank you to Robert Kaplinsky for coming on. You want to check out his new book, uh, The Open Middle Math Concept, and uh, check out the Observe Me movement on Twitter. Just use that hashtag, Observe Me, and maybe you want to put a sign out on your door and have your friends and colleagues come in and give you a second set of eyes as we're always working to improve um, our classroom practice. So uh, keep that in mind. And also, one more final reminder, we have the new newsletter that's out. It will uh, come out on Friday morning. The first one will be this week. Uh, and uh, you can expect to see show notes, resources, and uh, all types of fun things in the newsletter. So sign up at my Twitter feed, at Dr. Greg Gollins, or you can go to the website, reimagineschools.net. So again, folks, remember, 
Always do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.